0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton Section 12. Chapters 34 through 36. The White Horses. It is within my experience, which is very brief and occasional in this matter, that it is not really at all easy to talk in a motor car. This is unfortunate, first because as a whole it prevents me from motoring, and second because at any given moment it prevents me from talking. The difficulty is not wholly due to the physical conditions, though these are distinctly unconversational. Fitzgerald's Omar, being a pessimist, was probably rich, and being a lazy fellow, was almost certainly a motorist. If any doubt could exist on the point, it is enough to say that, in speaking of the foolish prophets, Omar has defined the difficulties of colloquial motoring, with a precision which cannot be accidental. Their words to wind are scattered, and their mouths are stopped with dust. From this follows, not as many of the cut-and-dried philosophers would say, a savage silence and mutual hostility, but rather one of those rich silences that make the mass and bulk of all friendship, the silence of men rowing the same boat or fighting in the same battle line. It happened that the other day I hired a motor-car because I wanted to visit in very rapid succession the battle-places and hiding-places of alfred the great and for a thing of this sort a motor is really appropriate it is not by any means the best way of seeing the beauty of the country you see beauty better by walking and best of all by sitting still but it is a good method in any enterprise that involves a parody of the military or governmental quality anything which needs to know quickly the whole contour of a country or the rough relative position of men and towns. On such a journey like jagged lightning, I sat from morning till night by the side of the chauffeur, and we scarcely exchanged a word to the hour. By the time the yellow stars came out in the villages, and the white stars in the skies, I think I understood his character, and I fear he understood mine. He was a Cheshire man, with a sour, patient, humorous face. He was modest, though a North countryman, and genial, though an expert. He spoke, when he spoke at all, with a strong Northland accent, and he evidently was new to the beautiful South country, as was clear both from his approval and his complaints. But though he came from the North, he was agricultural and not commercial in origin. He looked at the land rather than the towns, even if he looked at it with somewhat more sharp and utilitarian eye. His first remark for some hours was uttered when we were crossing the more coarse and desolate heights of Salisbury Plain. He remarked that he had always thought that Salisbury Plain was a plain. This alone showed that he was new to the vicinity, but he also said with a critical frown, a lot of this land ought to be good land enough, why don't they use it? he was then silent for some more hours. At an abrupt angle of the slopes that lead down from what is called, with no little humour, Salisbury Plain, I suddenly saw, as by accident, something I was looking for. That is something I did not expect to see. We are all supposed to be trying to walk into heaven, but we should be uncommonly astonished if we suddenly walked into it. As I was leaving Salisbury Plain, to put it roughly, I lifted up my eyes and saw the white horse of Britain. One or two truly fine poets of the Tory and Protestant type, such as Swinburne and Mr. Rudyard Kipling, have eulogised England under the image of white horses, meaning the white-maned breakers of the Channel. This is right and natural enough. The true philosophical Tory goes back to ancient things because he thinks they will be anarchic things. It would startle him very much to be told that there are white horses of artifice in England that may be older than those wild white horses of the elements. Yet it is truly so. Nobody knows how old are those strange green and white hieroglyphs, those straggling quadrupeds of chalk that stand out on the sides of so many of the southern downs. They are possibly older than Saxon and older than Roman times. They may well be older than british older than any recorded times they may go back for all we know to the first faint seeds of human life on this planet men may have picked a horse out of the grass long before they scratched a horse on a vase or a pot or masked and masked any horse out of clay this may be the oldest human art before building or graving and if so, it may have first happened in another geological age, before the sea burst through the narrow straits of Dover. The white horse may have begun in Berkshire, when there were no white horses at Folkestone or New Haven. That rude but evident white outline that I saw across the valley may have begun when Britain was not an island. We forget that there are many places where art is older than nature, We took a long detour through somewhat easier roads till we came to a breach or chasm in the valley, from which we saw our friend, the White Horse, once more. At least we thought it was our friend, the White Horse. But after a little inquiry we discovered to our astonishment that it was another friend and another horse. Along the leaning flanks of the same fair valley there was, it seemed, another White Horse, as rude and as clean as ancient and as modern as the first this at least i thought must be the aboriginal white horse of alfred which i had always heard associated with his name and yet before we had driven into the wattage and seen king alfred's quaint gray statue in the sun we had seen yet a third white horse and a third white horse was so hopelessly unlike a horse that we were sure that it was genuine THE FINAL AND ORIGINAL WHITE HORSE, THE WHITE HORSE OF THE WHITE HORSE Vale, HAS THAT BIG BABYISH QUALITY THAT TRULY BELONGS TO OUR REMOTEST ANCESTORS. IT REALLY HAS THE PREHISTORIC, PREPOSTEROUS QUALITY OF ZULU, OR NEW ZEALAND, NATIVE DRAWINGS. THIS AT LEAST WAS SURELY MADE BY OUR FATHERS WHEN THEY WERE BARELY MEN, LONG BEFORE THEY WERE CIVILIZED MEN. BUT WHY WAS IT MADE? "'Why did barbarians take so much trouble to make a horse nearly as big as a hamlet? "'A horse who could bear no hunter, who could drag no loads? "'What was this titanic subconscious instinct for spoiling a beautiful green slope "'with a very ugly white quadruped? "'What, for the manner of that, is this whole hazardous fancy of humanity ruling the earth, "'which may have begun with white horses?' which may by no means end with 20 horsepower cars. As I rolled away out of that country I was still cloudily considering how ordinary men ever came to want to make such strange chalk horses, when my chauffeur startled me by speaking for the first time for nearly two hours. He suddenly let go one of the handles, and pointed at a gross green bulk of down that happened to swell above us. That would be a good place, he said. Naturally, I referred to his last speech of some hours before and supposed that he meant it would be promising for agriculture. As a fact, it was quite unpromising, and this made me suddenly understand the quiet ardour in his eye. All of a sudden, I saw what he really meant. He really meant that this would be a splendid place to pick out another white horse. He knew no more than I did why it was done, but he was in some unthinkable prehistoric tradition, because he wanted to do it. He became so acute in sensibility that he could not bear to pass any broad, breezy hill of grass on which there was not a white horse. He could hardly keep his hands off the hills. He could hardly leave any of the living grass alone. Then I left off wondering. Why this primitive man made so many white horses. I left off troubling in what sense the ordinary eternal man had sought to scar or deface the hills. I was content to know that he did want it, for I had seen him wanting it. THE LONG BOW I find myself still sitting in front of The Last Book by Mr. H. G. Wells, I SAY STUNNED WITH ADMIRATION. MY FAMILY SAYS SLEEPY WITH FATIGUE. I STILL FEEL VAGUELY ALL THE THINGS IN MR. WELL'S BOOK WHICH I AGREE WITH, AND I STILL FEEL VIVIDLY THE ONE THING THAT I DENY. I DENY THAT BIOLOGY CAN DESTROY THE SENSE OF TRUTH, WHICH ALONE CAN EVEN DESIRE BIOLOGY. NO TRUTH WHICH I FIND CAN DENY THAT I AM SEEKING THE TRUTH. MY MIND CANNOT FIND ANYTHING WHICH DENIES MY MIND. But what is all this? This is no sort of talk for a genial essay. Let us change the subject. Let us have a romance or a fable or a fairy tale. Come let us tell each other stories. There once was a king who was very fond of listening to stories, like the king in the Arabian Nights. The only difference was that, unlike that cynical Oriental, this king believed all the stories that he heard. It is hardly necessary to add that he lived in England. His face had not the swarthy secrecy of the tyrant of the thousand tales. On the contrary, his eyes were as big and innocent as two blue moons, and when his yellow beard turned totally white, he seemed to be growing younger. Above him hung still his heavy sword and horn to remind men that he had been a tall hunter and warrior in his time. Indeed, with that rusted sword he had wrecked armies. But he was one of those who will never know the world, even when they conquer it. Besides his love of this old Chaucerian pastime of telling tales, he was, like many old English kings, specially interested in the art of the bow. He gathered round him great archers of the stature of Ulysses and Robin Hood, and to four of these he gave the whole government of his kingdom. THEY DID NOT MIND GOVERNING HIS KINGDOMS, BUT THEY WERE SOMETIMES A LITTLE BORED WITH THE NECESSITY OF TELLING HIM STORIES. NONE OF THEIR STORIES WERE TRUE, BUT THE KING BELIEVED ALL OF THEM, AND THIS BECAME VERY DEPRESSING. THEY CREATED THE MOST PREPOSTEROUS ROMANCES, AND COULD NOT GET THE CREDIT OF CREATING THEM. Their TRUE AMBITION WAS SENT EMPTY AWAY. THEY WERE PRAISED AS ARCHERS, BUT THEY DESIRED TO BE PRAISED AS POETS. They were trusted as men, but they would rather have been admired as literary men. At last, in an hour of desperation, they formed themselves into a club or conspiracy with the object of inventing some story which even the king could not swallow. They called it the League of the Longbow, thus attaching themselves by a double bond to their motherland of England, which has been steadily celebrated since the Norman Conquest for its heroic archery, and for the extraordinary credulity of its people. At last it seemed to the four archers that their hour had come. The king commonly sat in a green-curtained chamber, which opened by four doors and was surmounted by four turrets. Summoning his champions to him on an April evening, he sent out each of them by a separate door, telling him to return at morning with the tale of his journey. Every champion bowed low, and girding on great armor as for awful adventures, retired to some part of the garden to think of a lie. They did not want to think of a lie which would deceive the king. Any lie would do that. They wanted to think of a lie so outrageous that it could not deceive him, and that was a serious matter. The first archer who returned was a dark, quiet, clever fellow. Very dexterous in small matters of mechanics, he was more interested in the science of the bow than in the sport of it. Also he would only shoot at a mark, for he thought it cruel to kill beasts and birds, and atrocious to kill men. When he left the king, he had gone out into the wood and tried all sorts of tiresome experiments about the bending of branches and the impact of arrows. When even he found it tiresome, he returned to the house of the four turrets, and narrated his adventure. "'Well,' said the king, "'what have you been shooting?' "'Arrows,' answered the archer. "'So I suppose,' said the king, smiling. "'But I mean, I mean, "'what wild things have you shot?' "'I have shot nothing but arrows,' "'answered the bowman obstinately. "'When I went on out to the plain, "'I saw in a crescent "'the black army of the Tartars, "'the terrible archers, "'whose bows are of bended steel, "'and their bolts as big as javelins.' They spied me afar off, and the shower of their arrows shut out the sun, and made a rattling roof above me. You know I think it wrong to kill a bird, or worm, or even a tartar. But such is the precision and rapidity of perfect science, that with my own arrows I split every arrow as it came against me. I struck every flying shaft as if it were a flying bird. Therefore, sire, I may say truly, that I shot nothing but arrows. The king said, I know how clever you engineers are with your fingers. The archer said, Oh, and went out. The second archer, who had curly hair and was pale, poetical, and rather effeminate, had merely gone out into the garden and stared at the moon. When the moon had become too wide, blank, and watery even for his own wide, blank, and watery eyes, he came in again, and when the king said, What have you been shooting? he answered with great volubility, I have shot a man, not a man from Tartary, not a man from Europe, Asia, Africa or America, not a man on this earth at all. I have shot the man in the moon. Shot the man in the moon, repeated the king with something like mild surprise. It is easy to prove it, said the archer with hysterical haste. EXAMINE THE MOON THROUGH THIS PARTICULARLY POWERFUL TELESCOPE, AND YOU WILL NO LONGER FIND ANY TRACE OF A MAN THERE. THE KING GLUED HIS BIG, BLUE, IDIOTIC EYE TO THE TELESCOPE FOR ABOUT TEN MINUTES, AND THEN SAID, YOU ARE RIGHT, AS YOU HAVE OFTEN POINTED OUT. SCIENTIFIC TRUTHS CAN ONLY BE TESTED BY THE SENSES. I BELIEVE YOU. AND THE SECOND ARCHER WENT OUT, and, BEING OF A MORE EMOTIONAL TEMPERAMENT, BURST INTO TEARS. THE THIRD ARCHER WAS A SAVAGE, BROODING SORT OF MAN, WITH TANGLED HAIR AND DREAMY EYES, AND HE CAME IN WITHOUT ANY PREFACE, SAYING, I HAVE LOST ALL MY ARROWS, THEY HAVE TURNED INTO BIRDS. THEN AS HE SAW THAT THEY ALL stared AT HIM, HE SAID, WELL, YOU KNOW, EVERYTHING CHANGES ON EARTH. MUD TURNS INTO MARIGOLDS, EGGS TURN INTO CHICKENS. ONE CAN EVEN BREED DOGS INTO QUITE DIFFERENT SHAPES. Well, I shot my arrows at the awful eagles that clashed their wings round the Himalayas, great golden eagles as big as elephants, which snapped the tall trees by perching on them. My arrows fled so far over mountains and valleys that they turned slowly into fowls in their flight. See here! And he threw down a dead bird and laid an arrow beside it. Can you see they are the same structure? The straight shaft is the backbone, the sharp point is the beak. The feather is the rudimentary plumage. It is merely modification and evolution. After a silence, the king nodded gravely and said, Yes, of course, everything is evolution. At this, the third archer suddenly and violently left the room, and was heard in some distant part of the building, making extraordinary noises, either of sorrow or of mirth. The fourth archer was a stunted man with a face as dead as wood, but with wicked little eyes close together and very much alive. His comrades dissuaded him from going in because they said that they had soared up into the seventh heaven of living lies, and that there was literally nothing which the old man would not believe. The face of the little archer became a little more wooden as he forced his way in, and when he was inside he looked round with blinking bewilderment. Ha! the last,' said the king heartily, "'Welcome back again.' There was a long pause, and then the snutzer said, "'What do you mean by again? I have never been here before.' The king stared for a few seconds and said, "'I sent you out from this room with the four doors last night.' After another pause the little man slowly shook his head. "'I never saw you before,' he said simply. "'You never sent me out from anywhere.' I only saw your four turrets in the distance, and strayed in here by accident. I was born in an island in the Greek archipelago. I am by profession an auctioneer, and my name is Punk. The king sat on his throne for seven long instants like a statue, and then there awoke in his mild and ancient eyes an awful thing, the complete conviction of untruth. Everyone has felt it who has found the child obstinately false. He rose to his height and took down the heavy sword above him, plucked it out naked, and then spoke. I will believe your mad tales about the exact machinery of arrows, for that is science. I will believe your mad tales about traces of life in the moon, for that is science. I will believe your mad tales about jellyfish turning into gentlemen and everything turning into anything. But THAT IS SCIENCE. BUT I WILL NOT BELIEVE YOU WHEN YOU TELL ME WHAT I KNOW TO BE UNTRUE. I WILL NOT BELIEVE YOU WHEN YOU SAY THAT YOU DID NOT SET FORTH UNDER MY AUTHORITY AND OUT OF MY HOUSE. THE OTHER THREE MAY CONCEIVABLY HAVE TOLD THE TRUTH, BUT THIS LAST MAN HAS CERTAINLY LIED. THEREFORE I WILL KILL HIM. AND WITH THAT THE OLD AND GENTLE KING RAN AT THE MAN WITH UPLIFTED SWORD. BUT HE WAS ARRESTED BY THE ROAR OF HAPPY LAUGHTER which told the world that there is, after all, something which an Englishman will not swallow. THE MODERN SCROOGE Mr. Vernon Smith, of Trinity, and the social settlement, Tooting, author of A Higher London, and The Boyg System at Work, came to the conclusion, after looking through his select and even severe library, that Dickens' Christmas Carol, was a very suitable thing to be read to char-women. Had they been men, they would have been forcibly subjected to Browning's Christmas Eve, with exposition. But chivalry spared the char-women, and Dickens was funny and could do no harm. His fellow worker Wimpole would read things like, Three men in a boat to the poor, but Vernon Smith regarded this as the sacrifice of principle, or what was the same thing to him, of dignity." He would not encourage them in their vulgarity they should have nothing from him that was not literature still dickens was literature after all not literature of a high order of course not thoughtful or purposeful literature but literature quite fitted for char women on christmas eve he did not however let them absorb dickens without due antidotes or warning and criticism He explained that Dickens was not a writer of the first rank, since he lacked the high seriousness of Matthew Arnold. He also feared that they would find the characters of Dickens terribly exaggerated. But they did not, possibly because they were meeting them every day. For among the poor there are still exaggerated characters. They do not go to the universities to be universified. He told charwomen with progressive brightness, that a mad, wicked old miser like Scrooge would be really quite impossible now. But as each of the charwomen had an uncle or a grandfather or a father-in-law who was exactly like Scrooge, his cheerfulness was not shared. Indeed the lecture as a whole lacked something of his firm and elastic touch, and toward the end he found himself rambling, and in a sort of abstraction, talking to them as if they were his fellows. He caught himself saying quite mystically that a spiritual plane, by which he meant his plane, always looked to those on the sensual, or the Dickens' plane, not merely austere, but desolate. He said, quoting Bernard Shaw, that we could all go to heaven, as we can all go to a classical concert. But if we did, it would bore us. Realizing that he was taking his flock far out of their depths he ended somewhat hurriedly, and was soon receiving that generous applause which is part of the profound ceremonialism of the working classes. As he made his way to the door, three people stopped him and answered him hardly enough, but with an air of hurry which he would not have dreamed of showing to people of his own class. One was a little schoolmistress who told him with a sort of feverish meekness that she was troubled, because an ethical lecturer had said that Dickens was not really progressive. "'But she thought he was progressive, and surely he was progressive. "'Of what being progressive was she had no more notion than a whale. "'The second person implored him for a subscription to some soup kitchen or cheap meal, "'and his refined features sharpened, for this, like literature, was a matter of principle with him. "'Quite the wrong method,' he said, shaking his head and pushing past. "'Nothing any good but the boyage system.' The third stranger, who was male, caught him on the step as he came out into the snow and starlight, and asked him point-blank for money. It was a part of Vernon Smith's principles that all such persons are prosperous impostors, and like a true mystic he held to his principles in defiance of his five senses, which told him that the night was freezing, the man very thin and weak. If you come to the settlement between four and five on Friday week, he said, inquiries will be made the man stepped back into the snow with a not ungraceful gesture as of apology he had frosty silver hair and his lean face though in shadow seemed to wear something like a smile as vernon smith stepped briskly into the street the man stooped down as if to do up his bootlace he was however guiltless of any such dandyism and as the young philanthropist stood pulling on his gloves with some particularity A heavy snowball was suddenly smashed into his face he was blind for a black instant and then as some of the snow fell saw faintly as in a dim mirror of ice or dreamy crystal the lean man bowing with the elegance of a dancing master and saying amiably a christmas box when he had quite cleared his face of snow the man had vanished for three burning minutes cyril vernon smith was nearer to the people and more their brother than he had been in his whole high-stepping pedantic existence for if he did not love a poor man he hated one and you never really regard a laborer as your equal to you can quarrel with him dirty cad he muttered filthy fool mucking with snow like a beastly baby when will they be civilized Why, the very state of the street is a disgrace and a temptation to such tom-fools. Why isn't all this snow cleared away, and the street made decent? To the eye of efficiency, there was indeed something to complain of in the conditions of the road. Snow was banked up on both sides in white walls, and toward the other, the darker end of the street, even rose into a chaos of low, colorless hills. By the time he reached them he was nearly knee-deep, and was in a far-from-philanthropic frame of mind. Solitude of the little streets was as strange as their white obstruction, and before he had ploughed his way much further he was convinced that he had taken a wrong turning, and fallen upon some formless suburb unvisited before. There was no light in any of the low dark houses, no light in anything but the blank emphatic snow. He was a modern and morbid hellish isolation hit and held him suddenly anything human would have relieved the strain if it had been only the leap of a gerritur then a tender human touch came indeed for another snowball struck him and made a star on his back he turned with a fierce joy and ran after a boy escaping ran with dizzy and violent speed he knew not for how long he wanted the boy he did not know whether he loved or hated him. He wanted humanity. He did not know whether he loved or hated it. As he ran, he realized that the landscape around him was changing in shape, though not in color. The houses seemed to dwindle and disappear in hills of snow, as if buried. The snow seemed to rise in tattered outlines of crag and cliff and crest. But he thought of nothing of all these impossibilities, until the boy turned to bay. When he did... HE SAW THE CHILD WAS QUEERLY BEAUTIFUL, WITH GOLD RED HAIR, AND A FACE AS SERIOUS AS COMPLETE HAPPINESS. AND WHEN HE SPOKE TO THE BOY HIS OWN QUESTION SURPRISED HIM, FOR HE SAID FOR THE FIRST TIME IN HIS LIFE, WHAT AM I DOING HERE? AND THE LITTLE BOY, WITH VERY GRAVE EYES ANSWERED, I SUPPOSE YOU ARE DEAD. HE HAD ALSO FOR THE FIRST TIME A DOUBT OF HIS SPIRITUAL DESTINY. HE LOOKED ROUND ON A TOWERING LANDSCAPE OF FROZEN PEAKS AND PLAINS, AND SAID, IS THIS HELL? AND THE CHILD STARED, BUT DID NOT ANSWER. HE KNEW IT WAS HEAVEN. ALL OVER THAT COLOSSAL COUNTRY, WHITE AS THE WORLD, ROUND THE POLE, LITTLE BOYS WERE PLAYING, ROLLING EACH OTHER DOWN DREADFUL SLOPES, CRUSHING EACH OTHER UNDER FALLING CLIFFS, FOR HEAVEN IS A PLACE WHERE ONE CAN FIGHT FOREVER WITHOUT HURTING. Smith suddenly remembered how happy he had been as a child, rolling about on the safe sand hills around Conway. Right above Smith's head, higher than the cross of St. Paul, but curving over him like the hanging blossom of a harebell, was a cavernous crag of snow. A hundred feet below him, like a landscape seen from a balloon, lay snowy flats as white and as far away. He saw a little boy stagger with many catastrophic slides to that toppling peak, and seizing another little boy by the leg, sent him flying away down to the distant silver plains. There he sank and vanished in the snow, as if in the sea, but coming up again like a diver, rushed madly up the steep once more, rolling before him a great gathering snowball, gigantic at last, which he hurled back at the mountain crest and brought both the boy and the mountain down in one avalanche to the level of the vale the other boy also sank like a stone and also rose again like a bird but smith had no leisure to concern himself with this for the collapse of that celestial crest had left him standing solitary in the sky on a peak like a church spire he could see the tiny figures of the boys in the valley below and he knew by their attitudes that they were eagerly telling him to jump. Then, for the first time, he knew the nature of faith, as he had just known the fierce nature of charity, or rather, for the second time, for he remembered one moment when he had known faith before. It was when his father had taught him to swim, and he had believed he could float on water, not only against reason, but what is so much harder, against instinct." then he had trusted water now he must trust air he jumped he went through air and then through snow with the same blinding swiftness but as he buried himself in solid snow like a bullet he seemed to learn a million things and to learn them all too fast he knew that the whole world is a snowball and that all the stars are snowballs he knew that no man will be fit for heaven till he loves solid whiteness as a little boy loves a ball of snow he sank and he sank and he sank and then as usually happens in such cases woke up with a start in the street true he was taken up for a common drunk but if you properly appreciate his conversion you will appreciate that he did not mind since the crime of drunkenness is infinitely less than that of spiritual pride, of which he had really been guilty. End of section 12, chapters 37 through 39.